1: This is a part two of the humorology podcast. And my guest is once again, the wonderful comedian, communicator, curmudgeon, Simon Evans. We're going to pick up where we left off. Earlier on in the show, I I said you were an only child um, Mm. brought up in St. Albans. But... uh, I met you originally uh, through your brother, David. That's and, right, uh, yeah. <laughs> So that'll confuse the audience. Um, yeah. Well, could you just tell us a little bit about this extraordinary story? Because I'm interested in and in how you coped with all the information you got from this. But if you just give us a, a thumbnail of it.
2: Yeah, sure. I, I took a DNA test in um, 2018. Um, to this day, I struggle to explain exactly why, but just idle curiosity, really, about various things. Um, But no suspicion that I would find anything really extraordinary. But I did. I discovered that I was donor-conceived, artificial insemination. My father, who is still alive, um, it turns out, was unable to father children and um, and after seven or eight years of trying my parents uh, decided to go to a a clinic where um, my mother was was given a a sperm donation and she was assured at the time they were assured it would be like a a close ethnic match Uh, they were sort of led to believe probably a medical student something like that a a man of good quality good genetics um, but utterly anonymous It turns out it was actually a sperm donation from the husband of the uh, woman who ran the clinic. Her name was Mary Barton. His name was Bertolt Wiesner. And Wiesner had been supplying the vast majority of the sperm necessary for their clients over the course of about 23 years in that clinic. He's thought to have fathered somewhere between 600 and 1,000 children, but we really have no idea. But that's extrapolating from data that we do have. And um, and so I got these results back and was immediately introduced to all these people. I was half brothers and sisters. And um, there's about 60 of us who know each other now. And there's a, a WhatsApp group, an email group. There are regular meetups and so on. Um, most of them are a bit older than me. I was I was born towards the end of the lifespan of that clinic, um, as indeed was your friend David. Um, we're about the same age born in 65. There are some of them go back all the way to the mid 40s. Um, so they feel a bit more like aunts and uncles in the same, uh, some of them to me. And of course, I'm in denial about how old I am myself. So. But, uh, but yes, I suddenly have this huge um, sort of second family, really, which has been almost almost um, unadulterated joy. It, they're, they're a lovely bunch of people. Um, it, it was initially a little bit overwhelming, obviously, and confusing, but I went home and and told my parents that I'd learned the truth and they were relieved to find that I wasn't, you know, didn't feel like I'd been uh, deceived or, or somehow, um, you know, kept out of the picture. Um, it was, I understood, they were told very sternly by the clinic not to mention anything. And I think most people who had uh, conceived through that clinic decided it was best if nobody knew you know because once the word gets out at all it's bound to come back so even my my brother my mother's an only child as well as it happens and my my father has only one half sister and she didn't know until about uh, uh well about three weeks after i told them so um you know it had been an absolutely uh tightly sealed little secret which they've been carrying with them bless them for the whole sort of half century
1: well, it's an extraordinary story and and uh some people would crumble under the, uh, the weight of that story and go my whole way to lie how did humor actually help you to cope with it if you like or or or, or see it from a different perspective
2: well, I certainly found it was a fabulous thing to talk about on stage. I was anxious about it at first. I did a show about it in 2019. So about six months after I'd learned the truth, I, I was, you know, this show was written and ready to go. But what it was, it wasn't entirely about that. It was kind of a re-examination of my sense of humor uh, sense of humor, and my comedy over 25 years or so seen through the light of discovering that I was half Jewish and, uh, and that I did, my father wasn't my father and so on. And, some of that is quite superficial, you know. Oh, you know, I had a terrible experience watching Chelsea play. Well, it turns out I'm a Spurs fan, aren't I? You know, so just silly <laughs> jokes like that. But um but other things were um what I found I, for a long time as a stand-up, I had been starting to feel that it was a bit relentless, just going from one joke to the next. It was a bit flat, a bit monotone, in a sense. It was a good tone; it would lift people up. Over a twenty-minute set, of course, it's ideal. But if you're doing an hour and a half on stage in front of people, I wanted a little bit something of the bittersweet, a little bit more light and shade, you know. And um, as I mentioned in that same article that you that you reference, and there's the there's always a, like a there's a danger that you try and contrive something in order to get that, you know, oh, I'm going to talk about, you know, caring for my mother as she's slid into dementia or something. Well, you know, you, there are things, of course, in everyone's life, but you don't just want to retreat to the obvious tropes. So this really gave me an opportunity to talk about something that was a lot deeper to talk about, you know, I'd, I'd done so much material over the years, which was essentially complaining, that my life was needlessly complicated. And when I look back to my father's life as a, as a dad, his life had been very simple. It turns out his life wasn't nearly as simple as I thought it had been. You know, he'd had to take a huge decision to even have me, you know. And um, and so it was an opportunity to express a bit of gratitude, to express a little bit of humility, really, having confronted a truth that I hadn't previously suspected. I made a fairly conscious decision not to allow myself to think I've been deceived, I've been let down, I've been, you know, people who had should have had my best interests at heart have instead kept important details from me, because they were told that was for the best, you know, and that's as much as you could say about it. And the truth is, it probably was a good idea, I think, it, it you know, before DNA tests came out, before we could say, oh, my God, there's loads of us. You know, that wouldn't have been a thing that they would have anticipated. No. It would have just been some random piece of a jigsaw puzzle and the rest of it would have been lost. So um, that was all good. But, yeah, the ability to to find humor in it. I think is lovely, partly because everyone is slightly shocked when I tell them the story on stage, you know, they are, they sense the sort of emotional gravity of it. And so, of course, they're hugely relieved when you crack a joke about it, you know, you break that tension, that's what as everyone knows a lot of comedy is about creating a certain amount of tension in the room, and then and then relieving it, you know, and to be able to make that kind of, I am dealing with this. And, and this is quite, this was quite whoa, you know. Suddenly, like the the earth, you know, opens up, the uh, the floor disappears, and everyone goes, "Yeah, my god, that must be weird." And you, and then you, then you throw them a lifeline and go, "And here's a joke about it." You know, it gets a huge uh, reaction, as much as I say, of gratitude on their part that you're not going to force them to live with this tension, you know, for 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 long periods of time.
1: Well, and of course, the truth goes down a lot easier when it, a joke is attached, doesn't it? So it's a very yeah. powerful medium to see that. But I also, also think therapeutically, it's actually very valuable because it. Uh, what happens in humour is you have to take a different perspective on something, don't you? You have to look at yeah. it from a different angle. And so rather than being right in it, you... i'm wondering if the comedian's brain is always going and looking at it from another angle and therefore all trauma becomes slightly easier
2: to cope with do do you think that's true it's a very interesting proposition i i do think that Talking about your trauma is almost always good, but have thought because you were trying to make it funny, and people are paying to come and see a comedy show and not to hear somebody sort of complain for an hour and a half. You are forced to frame it that way, even if you might be feeling 50 50, you might be feeling, well, this is this is funny and full of ironies and and kind of hilarious. And also, this is upsetting. And oh, my God, I'll never meet my father. I've never, you know, my my um, my father was dead when I was five years of age and I'd never even I've never heard of him until I'm in my 50s. That could be, you know, you could find some cause for upset in that. But because you're because you have to make it funny in order to get in order to justify putting it on stage and people coming to watch you and listen to you that becomes a self-reinforcing notion to yourself that this is the appropriate way to think about it you know and that there is almost nothing nothing that i have encountered in my life anyway that is off limits you know that you shouldn't joke about as long as you acknowledge that it has a number of facets and However terrible it is, however painful it was, however tragic it is, however evil the perpetrator was, blah, blah, blah. Still, we cannot ignore the fact that, you know, I mean, there are hugely funny aspects to the Nazis. You know, they just are. Uh, and Freddie Star The producers. To, like, yeah, exactly. You know, it's brilliant. But, you know, but we've become very precious about that again at the moment. I don't know. We may be in a sort of strange um like an uncanny value, almost the amount of distance between us and the Second World War at the moment that, like, we seem to be a lot less capable of laughing about it than people were in the fifties, sixties, and seventies. I think it's it's strange, but uh, you know, we've become a lot more kind of uber-sensitive about uh, anyone who might have actually sort of uh, you know had their family killed or whatever. Of course, that is, you know, that's part of it. But humour can be a great mechanism for just getting on with life, you know, and and not making yourself into a victim. That's one of the worst things, I think, about the modern era is that victimhood has become a high status position. And that's something that, that comedy does Uh, Dissolve quite quickly, you know. It takes the piss, and that's 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 a really you know that's a good robust response to that notion. I completely
1: agree, and it's it's interesting when you read. I don't know if you've read *Man's Search for Meaning* by Viktor Frankl, Mm. and uh, he talks about you know this is a concentration camp, and he talks about how important humor was to do to see that to do that. My my father uh, was seventeen years old, stationed outside Dresden. Mm. and spent three months going in and out of Dresden because he was Hungarian. And, you know, they they went eventually and joined the Allies. But originally they were conscripted into the Hungarian army. And so but then he had to watch for 36 hours as Dresden was leveled. And he said to me, Mm. you know, he knew these people. They were old people, children, uh, you know, and women in there. And that's war. But he said most of the time they survived by going up to Germans and making them laugh because then they would feed them. And humor yeah. was that bridge.
2: Yeah.
1: That you couldn't. And and he said, I know there were horrible things, but there were there were nice Germans there as well. And that's yeah. kind of really a, a difficult the thing to say you know everything's black and white
2: now there are certain kinds of evil and certain kinds of atrocities that are regarded as being unexampled there, there was a great story I wish I could remember who it was but I think it might have been Evelyn Waugh who who told a story about um, men in a concentration camp in Burma and they're living in terrible crowded conditions there's half a dozen of them in a, in a small cabin you know they're not working at that particular time but there's you know there's liquid mud under the floor there's 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 terrible food half of them have got dysentery and all the rest of it regardless, nevertheless, one of them has managed to fall asleep and they look on him with a certain amount of envy for having he's escaped the horror of it briefly, you know, and he's he's fallen in, into a deep slumber. And then he starts twitching and moaning and then he starts calling out and he's obviously in some distress into having a nightmare of some sort and they think, oh, God, we're going to have to wake him up, aren't we? Because he's 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 like he's, he's more unhappy, but, the, the, you know, it's a terrible kind of dichotomy. Do you reintroduce him to the reality, which is horrible, or, or let him suffer in the nightmare, which is horrible? So they woke him up anyway. And, and he came to his senses and he said, oh, I'm so terribly sorry, chaps. Um, I, I dreamt I was back in Tunbridge, his grammar school. You know, he had had such a miserable time at, uh, at, uh, at Tunbridge, grammar school or public school, you know, beaten by the, by the uh, masters and cold showers and uh, sleeping. It, it, it was actually worse than where they were now yeah <laughs> and i mean there's a lot i think there's there's a there's a lot of reason to believe that that that, that was an intentional priming of course in the in the in, in the school system for for boys of a certain class were being prepared to go out into the empire and the colonial management and so on and endure horrors and hardship and uh, it was toughening them up as much as it was teaching them dates and and uh, geography and so on but um yeah we've we've sort of started to believe that there are certain things that are sacrosanct and can't be joked about but as I say, it wasn't the case at the time. I don't think it was. I don't think it, again. First World War, the Somme, and so on, always seen now as absolutely horrific beyond redemption. But a lot of the men who came back said actually there was a lot of camaraderie in the trend. You know, if you survived, it was and and people in the Blitz in London. There's there's some very interesting studies of the sort of mindset that was adopted there, not sort of um, consciously or or as a, a top down uh you know, attempt to allow people to survive it psychologically, but just as an emergent phenomena that people began to feel lucky if they survived a bombing, they didn't just kind of go oh, uh, that was close. they actually went oh, hey, you didn't get me saw you, Jerry, you know, and you went through a few weeks of that and you start to feel like, king of the world, you know, like you're actively you're walking around the rubble and you're thinking, I mean, Winston Churchill said nothing greater than than uh, no greater thrill than uh, to be shot at without consequence.
1: Well, my father uh, used to go through his life. He's unfortunately been dead for six and a half years but he used to say i'm lucky and if you listen to the litany of things that happened to my father 17 years old in dresden um uh, no yeah. 18 years old going in with the allies to berlin um in the front line you know then all being put in a, a camp while they worked out who was friend or foe then traveling yeah. to get back to hungary then starting again then the uprising in hungary in 56 and having to escape walking four days through the the snow putting in a refugee camp coming to a new country with their, their leaving his family behind they they ended up having to stay there because of the Russians and you know yeah and he would go I'm lucky and yeah. uh, I have this thing now whereby I'm constantly I constantly going I'm the luckiest person in
2: the world Great, isn't it? It's a great feeling to feel lucky and to feel gratitude. I think those are the two things, you know, in a way, I would probably place gratitude a little bit higher, because it's a thing you definitely have control over, I suppose, luckiness. It's a sort of way of framing events, but but you know, you could argue it one way or the other, and it can potentially, you can end up seeming you know, there are certain kind of characters in fiction and so on, aren't there? I suppose Condide and so on, who just like relentlessly optimistic, despite everything that happens to them. Me, I mean, it does, you can become slightly farcical, but <laughs> but to have gratitude for the simple fact that you survive these things and the, the general nature of human beings, I think, or at least people that I know. And again, yeah, my father, the same. I mean, I think men of our father's generation, you know, the re- re- reality is they endured things that are far worse than almost anyone encounters now. You know, my father lost his mother to tuberculosis before he was a year old, you know, and that really, that was not unusual before penicillin you know there was quite a lot of that kind of stuff and you lose brothers and sisters you know and people used to have more children than they wanted because they knew they'd lose some you know so i mean we just live in a completely different universe if those people could find things to laugh about which they clearly could you know the whether george Formby and gracie fields or, or whatever it was or the comics or, or just the sort of i've always said that the, the forces humor Trench's humor is is some of the funniest you know it's not necessarily Incredibly sophisticated or witty, but the, the trenchant kind of uh, the, the 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 attitude that it that the radiates from some of the you know the banter of of men under fire or nowadays often in operating theatres and so on you know it's it's just hilarious.
1: We had John Sweeney on who spent half most of the last year in Ukraine, and. He has been in 60 war zones and uprisings and things, uh, thing. And he talks about how important that, that kind of dark humour is to survival. Yeah. And yeah. I think it is, you know, surgeons. I used to train surgeons at Guy's, King's and St Thomas's, And they would have
2: the darkest humour. But mm. sometimes you need that to survive. I totally agree. And also I would add, you don't even need to justify it like that you know if you can laugh why not laugh you know you don't need to say well it's a survival mechanism it may be a survival mechanism and it may also simply be a, i am happier <laughs> you know this cheers me up just the way that humor always does there's nothing distasteful if you're laughing at someone who is in misery and distress and they're there, present in the room. You know that's obviously another thing. And then, then I suppose you might struggle to say, well, it's the only way I get through this. Well, I'm sorry that there might be, awkward, you know, you don't want the police to come to your house to investigate a burglary and have them just openly laughing at the, you know, at the the uh, nonsense that the police that the burglars have taken, or the fact that they shat on your rug or something. I mean, that's you know, that's that's unkind. But once they've gone in the car, if the police want to turn to each other and go, did you see the state of that? vase in the in the kitchen what the hell are they? do you want know to I mean that's fine with me that if that's you know what as again it's not even as a survival mechanism just if it makes them laugh I have no quarrel with that at all I just think people should laugh for its own sake you know
1: I agree I agree do you think that you can be anybody can be a good communicator or even a great communicator without understanding humor
2: well I don't know about understanding. There can be. I wouldn't want to overstress it. There are great communications. There are great, there's great prose. There are great speeches that I've, you know, come across. I wouldn't say Lincoln. I mean, there's a great old uh, Far Side cartoon where uh, you're looking over Lincoln's shoulder at Gettysburg, you know, at the podium and he's got his speech and it goes, and the duck said, no, that's mine or something. And, and he <laughs> paused, paused for laughter. And then it was three sk- score years and 10 ago, you know, and then he moves into the famous address. I mean, the Gettysburg Address is is often held up as you know the 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 um, acme of of, uh, of human rhetoric, and uh, there's no jokes in there at all. There's no sense that anyone has any sense of humor. It's a somber occasion, and um, and and it's not even particularly like a rallying cry. You know, it's not. I mean, Henry V's speech in, um, in in the Battle of Agincourt, two speeches. You know, those reduce me to shivering tears almost every single time. You know, I sometimes sit and watch. Rana, Olivier and others on YouTube in succession just like absolutely bathing in it you know the the incredible the poetry the, you know just the the understanding of human motivation and the and the, again the rhythm and, and 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 it's not it's not clever clever language at all it's 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 quite earthy you know but it, it's I just I just find it absolutely um spine tingling. There's no jokes in there at all. So I wouldn't say you need to have jokes, but clearly Shakespeare can also write jokes. And I don't think, I think you have to sort of suppress a sense of humour sometimes, but I suspect anyone who does understand human beings will naturally have a sense of humour. I don't necessarily think it needs to be part of your communication. And there are times when it, but I mean, I think even now the most, Um, celebrated TED Talk is the one uh, I can't remember his name, but he's an educator um, Ken Robinson, yeah, talked about um, the dangers of uh, school sort of crushing creativity in students, fabulous TED Talk it is amazing, and and he uses humour brilliantly, but not in the points that he's making, it oscillates back and forth, so he breaks the tension he gives you some important information he makes a a strong assertion, and and it's thought-provoking, and then while that's sinking in, he kind of you know, tells a funny story about what it was like flying to America with his son on the flight and, and his son would take the headphones off or whatever, that kind of stuff, you know, little kind of observational humor. I don't know whether you'd necessarily say he was using the humor to communicate. It was more like they were a series of palate cleansers between short, pungent, pithy pieces, but they just allowed the rhythm to break in between each piece.
1: Well, I'd also say that yeah, you know, that it is so important to that, and why is it so popular is because he is creating ultimate connection and rapport with the audience yeah. through the humour. Because you could yes. just fire off those those facts, and it would land completely differently.
2: That's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, I think there's at least two points. And the one I made is essentially people need a bit of time to absorb the last point before they get the next point, And humour gives that little space. But also the point you've made, which is that it establishes rapport. It means there's understanding. And yes... There's nothing that is more effective at kind of going, I'm just like you. You can trust me. I do understand human beings as somebody doing that kind of humor. Other kinds of humor, of course, are higher risk and you might turn people off. So that's, you know, his is very well judged from that point of view. It's quite low status, it's quite self-deprecating. He's presenting himself as a hapless dad. You know, here I am a man with an expensive mic holding court in a big debating platform, but trust me, there are times when I'm on the school run when I'm just like you, you know, that that really works as well.
1: You're a a master at uh, hosting corporate events and awards. What advice would you give to people who have to get up and speak for
2: work events? Mm, Well, they are tricky. I mean, every comedian dreads them a little bit, probably more than they should do. I think part of the reason being, of course, that nobody in the room has paid to see you. There's no expectation. There's no commitment from their point of view. So psychologically, that's a big difference. I generally speaking, find them more on my wavelength now than comedy club audiences. Comedy club audiences are in the mood for comedy, but they're not necessarily in the mood for a 57 year old man they're often sort of in their 20s and 30s, the people who go to comedy clubs, whereas the corporate events are more often my age group, to be honest, and probably a little bit more aligned with me politically and that sort of thing. So I don't find them that frightening. But again, I mean, I wouldn't say there's any major difference. Confidence is absolutely key. And people don't expect any kind of apology. They don't particularly like that kind of, oh, we rehearse this sort of thing, but let's see how we go. Or where's my Where's the prompter? You know, where's my laser pointer? They like it if you're totally in command. They really do. Um, I do think, you know, working every every event I do now, the confidence that the sound desk have as well, those sort of things and the lights and get there early and rehearse that properly and make sure that the lighting is good. The sound desk have understood the challenges that you're going to confront because some rooms are noisy once everyone's in there, you know, and, um, and if you have... Uh, if they give you a lapel mic or one of those ones that clips onto your ear or whatever, or just like hovers on your cheek, that frees up your hands. Use your hands because there's nothing worse than somebody with a clip mic just standing there with two, like, limp, you know, uh, sleeves hanging down either side of their jacket. People like a little bit of that, not too much. If you want somebody who's a master at it, Ron DeSantis, you may not like his politics, but he's fantastic with the hands. It's a little bit Donald Trumpish at times, but he. do you know him? He's the governor of Florida. He's I, I am, a- yeah. Yeah, he's probably he's the, a, the, the Republican the next candidate. He's coming
1: man, isn't
2: he? Yeah. And, and uh, as I say, I, I'm well aware that a lot of people watching this won't like his politics one bit, but you can still learn from his uh, his command Absolutely. of a podium is extraordinary. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you can watch a few people like that, you know. I, 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 but, I mean, Christopher Hitchens was always like a, an incredible master and he was very loose and would break every rule I've just said. He was sort of his, his Well, and Boris Johnson, of course, you know. Tie squiffy and and one collar out, and he could command half a million quid for a for, you know for a speaking engagement. People loved it. I found it tiresome that that endless kind of performative shambolism. But um, you know there are always people who uh, break the rules and and get away with it. But if you if you just want to kind of hit eighty percent, if you just want to be like safe and know that what you're doing is likely to to connect, I would say clean, like clean gestures, clean silhouette clean language don't uh, risk like using a little bit of slang to try and break it's okay for a comedian because we're given license but if you're a professional who's and if you are going to use any humor make it entirely at your own expense or at the expense of somebody you know the audience has genuine consensus on there is nothing worse than a performer who assumes a consensus that doesn't exist you know
0: Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: So, I mean, obviously the extreme example of that would be to tell a racist joke in front of an audience who don't like racist jokes. It's gone. Do you know what I mean? You're never getting it back from there. But if you tell a joke at your expense or something about company culture that everyone understands – I mean, there are always those kind of feeble jokes that I personally find annoying where the, uh, you know, the MD is, uh, takes the piss out of the chief executive for his obsession with Man United, you know, and you just think, oh, God, it's such a normy thing to be obsessed with Man United, you know, it's just not interesting, but they love it because they all know about it, you know, and it just connects them. Anything that, uh, comedians always do this, anything that lets the audience know what you look like to them but without being kind of horrifically, squirmingly embarrassed about it, you know? So, I mean, again, I keep referencing him today, but Stuart Lee did a routine taking the piss out of this, where he would just go, I know what you're thinking, so-and-so has let himself go and he would have a whole list of people who have let themselves go you know and he would kind of go they all are he does look a bit like all those people you know it might be Tucker off Grange Hill I think was the first one but um you know he does look a little bit like Mark Commode the film critic he does look a little bit like the bloke who used to present the word I can't remember his name and, Mark Lamar um, but it wasn't Lamar, but yeah, but he does look a bit like Lamar as well. It oh no, Mark, the, yeah. um, uh,
1: the 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 uh, Manchester guy,
2: Manchester one. That's right. Yeah, uh, but yeah, he does I look know. a bit like Lamar as well from Buzzcocks. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, if you just say, um, I mean, I do a joke still to this day. Funny enough, I have got a pair of glasses. I can do it with where I go. I come on. A, I need my glasses to read the script. Um, I will just say, though, I can't help noticing whenever I wear these glasses, it appears I'm also wearing a false nose. <laughs> and there is something about glasses and my nose that does make that. Well, I mean, I'm not saying nick that joke, but, you know, anything that you can do like that where people go, oh, he knows what he looks like. That's quite good. You know, that helps because it just closes a loop somehow.
1: Do you remember Cardew Robinson, who was a, yeah. a hundred year old and he had a, he was a very wizened old man and he used to do after dinners? And I was lucky enough to meet him and sit down and we we, we had lunch once. And he, uh, and he said, uh, and he was doing exactly what you do, because by that time he was probably about 85 years old. Wow. And they book him and he said, I would deliberately shamble on and look very sort of, uh, you know, weakened. You know? And he said, for the first minute, I would... Uh, oh, thirty seconds. I would look around and go, uh, uh, "Oh, I, 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 I'm sorry." Uh, 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 and uh, you could feel the audience feeling sorry for him, and then feeling awkward and everything. And he goes, "I, I, I just have to find my glasses." And he would n- mess with paper, and 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 he would get his. He goes, uh, "Unfortunate." And he put the glasses on and goes, "Unfortunately, my eyes aren't what they used to be." They used to be my bollocks. And he said it <laughs> coming from this
2: old man. Wow. It used to just get a woof. And it was a slightly a, a woof of relief. That's an amazing joke. Uh, It's a very good technique is to initially give people the impression that you're not going to be up to the job and then to prove that you are up to the job. But it's high risk, of course, and you mustn't carry it on for too long. But there are people that's a great example of it. And of course, to be 85, I mean, to deliberately shamble on, I mean, you know, to be able to shamble on at all at 85 is pretty good. So, you know, fair play to him. Barry Humphreys, who we went to see recently, I think was 90, who we saw earlier this year at the, uh, or sorry, last year at the uh, Queen's Theatre in in, uh, the Gielgud in Charlesbury Avenue. He was just doing a sort of uh, an amble through his life and works, you know, almost like a, a memoir kind of show. He had, I mean, I think there were a lot of people who were worried about whether he and he got a bit lost a couple of times. He had an auto cue that was um, appeared that was presented as if it was a speaker, but it clearly had a teleprompter that was rolling across on it, you know, and he would glance down at it occasionally to pick up his time but then every so often there'd be a flash of the wit you know and as a result you just felt it that it was like a little bit of that old steel came out you know and um and it was delicious it was absolutely de- but of course he was everyone had bought into that that's a different thing you know they're going to see somebody who's given them half a century of pleasure and and uh, and they, they entirely indulge him in in being a little bit confused at times and needing to sit down between <laughs> routines. <laughs> But I love I love the Cardew Robinson thing. And I, I do remember he was on um TW3, wasn't he? I think and, and things like that, sort of early days of satire. Yeah. I mean, again, if you're venerable in that respect, it gives you it gives you something to work with. But there is also that thing of just kind of uh, straightening up and going, Phew. Anyway, sorry about that and uh and everyone's i mean it's a slightly different thing but what it's reminded me of do you know remember the film seven the uh brad pitt and morgan freeman like with kevin spacey as a serial killer and the first sort of 10 or 15 minutes of that movie apart from all the grimness generally of murder scenes and so on is shot in relentless rain and there's quite a lot of driving scenes and the rain is thundering on the roof of the car and it's quite hard to hear what they're saying. And Brad Pitt is kind of going, Oh, I don't want to go and do this. Because Freeman's like, Yeah, we got to go and do this case, you know. But the muttering, and you kind of you think I'm missing lines. Oh my God, this is terrible. The sound is awful in this movie. I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to hear the dialogue. And then at a certain point, it stops and they're back in the police office, or they're in the library looking at the book of uh, the seven deadly sins or something, and there's a quiet and a calm, and instantly you just like you know, it's a huge relief. You're absolutely you know, you're almost bathed in gratitude for the fact that they all that kind of noise has stopped, and you're aware that it has been a deliberate kind of priming device. The kind of you're 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 yeah. almost straining forward in your seat to try and hear them and work out what's going on. The West Wing used to do it brilliantly as well, slightly different thing, but the West Wing, the series, the first yeah, yeah. 10 minutes, of every episode would be in media res, everything would start. They were immediately, they were already in a crisis. You weren't allowed to, you weren't being told what the crisis was. You know, there was a certain bill that was not going to get ratified if they didn't get this speech ready by the afternoon or whatever. And you were like, I don't understand. And and then British audiences would assume it was also partly because we weren't American and we had that disadvantage. And then at a certain point, I suspect in America after the first commercial break, but we didn't have one, Um, there would be a conversation, Josh very often and his secretary, where they would explain what was going on. You get the exposition that would bring you up to speed. But by then you were already kind of panicking that you weren't, you didn't have it. And so you, again, there was, instead of kind of going, Oh, it's the exposition. You were like, Oh my God, thank you. Thank you. Finally, somebody's explaining to me what's going on.
1: But those are dangerous techniques for for our listeners. Yeah. Is there a number one tip uh, to engage an audience quickly?
2: Well, if if you're intending to be funny, then you do need to commit and try to be funny quite quickly. You can't hold it off for too long because they will think, oh, is you know, but not every uh, everyone addressing a corporate audience has no. to be funny. But if you are going to use humor, not the very first thing you say, but I guess, again, it's the timing, the rhythm. I would say one comment. All right, David. Nice to see you. How's the wife? Okay, good she over that difficulty issue yeah fine you know like you know just like a little kind of uh, aside yes exactly something of that sort rather than coming and going before i start here's a joke you know don't you can't do that yeah <laughs> no 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 if something i mean it's very important to be in the room for at least you know 15 ideally half an hour beforehand and be aware of everything that's gone on and I say that as a comedian as well I used to hate it if you tried to double up and you arrived just in time to go on stage you had no idea what had happened before you'd never have a good gig in those circumstances you've got to soak up the atmosphere but also the specifics you know so you can say um you know if there's been an interruption earlier let's say somebody's dropped a tray of drinks or something go um before I start, has everyone got their drinks this time? You know that that kind of thing. Just <laughs> yeah. acknowledge that that incident happened earlier, and you don't want that happening again. Things like that—they don't have to be witty. They just have to acknowledge the reality that you're all in. I think that is a very safe way of getting just enough of a laugh to bed you in. You know,
1: I think that's brilliant, and I I, I always talk about that listening to a room, because yeah. I think that. Any great performer is listening and taking in, and that means listening with the eyes as well, yeah. and taking in what's actually happening. Because sometimes the funniest things are just those little asides or saying something that actually happened. Yeah, rather absolutely. Than, Here's a gag, you know.
2: Totally. But, I, oh, I completely agree. I always get a laugh. Radio theatre, whether you, they record Radio 4 plays, I think, it's art, art Deco kind of architecture. You can't always see it no. depending on how many screens they've got up. It just has a vaguely Third Reich vibe about it. You know, It just looks very slightly like one of the big rallies. And um, any attention you draw to that always gets a laugh. And I think partly because it's a little bit risky as well, is That because there's always a suggestion that I might have an un- uh, and uh, an unpalatably keen interest in third rank <laughs> architecture and decor you know but uh, things like that anything you can point out yeah just like uh, i mean arthur smith you know always used to do jokes about the where the fire extinguishers were if there are any students in you know that sort of thing it, it, it just you know anything that anchors it to the situation you're in the, the the environment so that they don't think you're phoning it in that's another important thing just to uh. let them know you're really there you know
1: yeah no no be relevant to the situation yeah. yeah no i think that's great anyway simon we've reached the point in the show which we like to call quick fire questions
2: okay go ahead quick fire quick fire questions. questions.
1: <laughs> who and this is you're a comedian so you who is the funniest business person that you've met somebody who isn't in the business of comedy
2: Well, I haven't met that many. I mean, obviously, I've seen a few people like uh, talking on TV or whatever in conferences. But there is a man I know, he's the father of one of my very best friends. Uh, My friend's name is Danny Solomon. And his dad's name is Sir Harry Solomon. He's a significant North London Jewish businessman. He's a part owner, I think of Hillsdown Holdings was his big firm. I remember when it was floated on the stock exchange when I was sharing a house with Danny at University, and I suddenly realized that he had a slightly different life than my own. But Sir Harry is a very funny man very very funny indeed a lot of his uh, humor revolves around football he's a Middlesbrough fan um and he can banter with his son brilliantly about you know they can be walking we we went we occasionally been on a couple of walks through the countryside because the old man's well into his 80s now but he's still fit and uh and they'll see like a village name and it will be like um I don't know Haymore Staffordshire or something, and go oh Haymore Staffordshire. He was a left back for for uh, late late Orient, wasn't he? You know, and they, they just have this kind of banter, which is brilliant. So he's a man who has coped with it, with huge amounts of success and prestige, and has kept his feet very, very you know, on the ground. I think I, 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 he reminds me. I've never met him, but I, he's a little bit like what I imagine Warren Buffett must be like. You know, hasn't moved house, hasn't kept constantly upgraded his car every time he gets you know. I think humour is a big part of his success personally. I, I remember registering in, in the first time he came down and took us out to dinner when I was at Southampton that this was a man who had enormous success but immediately put you at, his ease, at your ease because he was he was funny.
1: Oh, brilliant. I, I will look him up. Hmm. Um, you, you are a wonderful writer and you really have a, an amazing facility with words. What book makes you laugh?
2: Well, I did. I bought some Woodhouse yesterday and I think anyone who's ever encountered Woodhouse, you know, would have to put him on the very top shelf. Maybe that's a bit obvious. David Sedaris used to, uh, he's been writing for about 25 years now, Sedaris, and I kind of he's feel on like Radio maybe I've now yeah he is. I find his voice the way he speaks. He's, you know, it has a very markedly lisping sort of gay American accent. I mean, he is gay. You know, not complaining about that, but it's it's almost like a stage gay. You know, the way he speaks, and and I find him in prose much more enjoyable. I like to, you know, read it at my own pace. But his book, Me Talk Pretty, one day, I mean, I do remember, you know, people say, you know, don't read this in public transport because you'll just be laughing and it'll annoy people. It it was that laugh out loud funny. That would be his funniest book for me. I would say that would be one of them. Douglas Adams used to make me laugh, um, like almost until I uh, was gasping for breath. And that Patrick Campbell story that I mentioned, um, The Hot Box, that is one of the funniest things I've ever read. Alan Corrin as well could write at that level. Um, steady on Mr. Beethoven, that was your fifth, about Beethoven's liver demonstrating his alcoholism and and Corrin defending Beethoven's right to enjoy a drink. <laughs> oh well no wonderful great a lot of choices there what film if you if you want one book that will gather them all together frank muir wrote uh i think it's called the oxford book of british humor it's a big compendium which you can pick up for a couple of quid on amazon in hardback it was out probably 30 or 40 years ago An incredible anthology of of great british prose i think that would be my desert island book probably
1: oh fantastic what film makes you laugh, Simon?
2: Uh, the my worry is that I'm going to be it's going to be all too obvious. Most of them are most of my sort of top selections are widely understood to be. <laughs> uh, Spinal Tap would be one, definitely. Oh, um, my favourite. My favourite. I I love. Um, yeah, I, I mean, all of that again. Those improv guys. Uh, the best in show is lovely as well. Actually, from them, possibly yes. slightly more underrated. Um, I did think. I mean, I don't know if it's is it quite a comedy. I think Groundhog Day is a is a masterpiece, and yeah. because it has that bittersweet element as well. You know, incredibly funny, but also uh, it's it's saying something important. About life, And then I think the great screwball comedies like uh, His Girl Friday would be a good one. Cary Grant, Rosalind Russell um, from the 30s, old black and white movie, the speed of the dialogue, the snap of the whole thing, incredible. Or a little bit later, um, Some Like It Hot, you know, that's about as funny as a film could be. You can't, you can't fit any more jokes in than and good jokes, you know, the turnaround on some of those routines. Is like a single word, bat, bat it's like a it's not even like a tennis match. It's 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 like a kind of slapping match. It's extraordinary speed. Yeah, no, no, Probably no. if I was forced to name one, I think some like it hot. I would think no, no, no. just a classic, superb.
1: Um, we're going to take a shift to the other side, and I I I think I know uh, you and where you're going to come on come from on this question, but. What's not funny?
2: Well, uh, uh, as we said earlier, I don't think there's any subjects that aren't funny, but generally speaking, I don't like it when I sense that a comedian is wanting to be liked. That's, that's what will kill a joke for me. If I sense that a, a comedian is telling a routine or taking an angle or taking, a, taking a, an approach to a subject because they want you to, to like them. Um, Or because they're trying to, they're they're foregrounding something other than the their job, which is to be funny. I didn't like Hannah Gadsby's Nanette show, not because I disapproved of her message, but because I'd been told I was about to watch a stand-up comedy show, and instead I was subjected, I felt, to what amounted to a lecture about why stand-up comedy is not necessarily a force for good, because it allows people, it lets people off the hook, instead of confronting and dealing with difficult issues, such as the homophobia she encountered as a young woman in Tasmania. Now, that's a perfectly legitimate subject for her to talk about, but it wasn't stand-up comedy as far as I was concerned now obviously I'm in a minority or at least she found a, a sizable enough minority herself to make a lot of money out of that show and the video I saw was filmed at the Sydney Opera House you know so she did well out of it but I don't find that funny I find that preaching and um and hectoring and and uh sanctimonious to be honest you know and that isn't funny to me if you're trying to make kind of I don't know social justice points or whatever with comedy if if they're funny that's great and you and you're left afterwards with the realization that you know refugees there but for the grace of god go I yeah of course you know that's absolutely fine but if if the if the message has been allowed to dominate where the where the comedy goes rather than the comedy itself
1: yeah so that's a personal thing but being a libertarian you wouldn't get in anybody's way for doing it
2: oh I I would never ever protest outside a show or something absolutely not I mean it's counterproductive anyway it just makes people want to go and see it doesn't it but um, <laughs> That's yeah true isn't it <laughs> you know I, th- I think those South Park guys did well out of that and actually I mean I went to see Jerry Springer the opera because of the protest and I thought it was shit <laughs> <laughs> I never would have gone to see it if it hadn't been for the protest so there you go
1: it's, it's sometimes counterproductive isn't it what word makes you laugh?
2: Good, good. Yeah, well, my wife and I used to share words that we found were funny. I I like small woodland animal type words like ferret, stoat, weasel. I don't know why. There's all of those words. All the small kind of little rustling leaf animals are all funny. Um, I like words like foist. Um, I do like little word. I like kind of words that have a like a single syllable, but have a little bit of... Um, uh, like thumb for instance thumb is a funny word i just think it's a funny it's a, a little stubby you know protuberance the thing itself is quite funny but the thumb the thumb i don't know it's just like a, it, it, i don't like long some i mean some people do like like long fancy perspicacious you know type uh, yeah, there was a great uh, Ruttles lyric um, You're so pusillanimous. Oh, yeah, nature's calling and I must go there. Which I did like the use of pusillanimous (laughs) there because they'd broken it down for the rhyme. But but broadly speaking, I think all those long, clever words are not funny. I'm much more of an Anglo-Saxon. Again, I go back to Galtman Simpson. Hancock, I think it was saying, Go, I thought my wife's cooking. I thought my mother's cooking was bad, but at least her gravy used to move about a bit. Now... (laughs) I don't know what you'd say was the funny word there, but it's it's the absence of funny. It's like it's move about a bit. Do you know what I mean? It's like, go on, move about a bit. You know, it's, that's that's funnier than any kind of at least a gravy had some mobility. I mean, that wouldn't be funny. No. I tell you, who's a master at choosing them well, though, is Bob Mortimer. I'm reading his autobiography at the moment, which is lovely, light bedtime reading. Very, very funny, lovely man, of course, but he is a, yeah, he, a a lot of his passages of remembering his work as a solicitor and stuff are elevated by just a really unusual, well chosen. The more specific, usually, that's a good rule of thumb. I was taught that very early on. David Jason getting a laugh when he was complaining to Nicholas Hindhurst in uh, Only Fools and Horses that, um, you know, I remember when you were a young lad and I was a young man, I was trying to get out, meet girls, and instead, you know, every time I try and leave the house, You know, I'd have your uh, puke on me, Ben Sherman's. You know, nice because they were bent, not my trousers or my shirt, but very specific. You could immediately picture him looking like trying to leave the house like a young mod and he's got a younger brother who's just thrown up on him, you know. Yeah, Yeah.
1: John Sullivan was a genius with that turn of phrase as well. Yeah,
2: he was. What sound makes you laugh? Sound, well... I do like that kind of balloon squeak, you know, that, "Eh," you know, like (laughs) a a rubbery squeak. Yeah, very fond of those. (laughs) And that one where you let a bit of air out of a balloon by, you know, with the neck, where you're pulling the neck, you know, that thing. Yeah. You've got a balloon blown up, it it makes it, yeah. My dad used to get a similar sound out of a bit of grass. He could hold it between his thumbs and then blow through it. Do you remember seeing that? Yeah, um, of course, yeah. Yeah. And he used to say they were Dangerous. That's what he'd collect. (laughs) Oh, oh, there's Dangerous in these woods. So that was a lovely sound. That's yeah. a good sound as well. <laughs>
1: uh, um, the penultimate question. Um, we know that you are, uh, you know, have a background in legal and uh, you, you've, you write brilliantly and everything. Would you rather be considered clever or funny?
2: Well, definitely funny rather than clever, because clever is a bit of a, that is often a backhanded compliment. Oh, yeah, all, that's all very clever, but, you know, <laughs> okay. I can see what you're trying to do there. Too I clever I'm selling, by half. Yeah, exactly. There, I used to sell uh, carpet cleaning door-to-door and uh, in in university holidays, and a classic thing, you know, you've got your little checklist going, oh, right, madam, can I just check, have you got any carpets that are more than three years old? Oh, you have. Oh, dear, okay. You know, they go through all <laughs> this, stuff. And they'd all listen, you know, and they'd often be a board housewife and they'd have sort of 10 minutes to spare just listening. But they had no intention of buying, you know, sometimes they were too busy and they'd have sort of no time. Sometimes at the end of it, they'd always go, you're very clever, but I'm not interested. (laughs) If I was very clever, you wouldn't have noticed that I was very clever. Do you know what I mean? The cleverness. (laughs) Art is not art, which announces itself. You know, you have to conceal it. Having said all of that, I do hope that as well as being funny, people think I am, you know, I have some unusual and perhaps esoteric reference points that I have something to introduce to the conversation that isn't just ordinary or obvious that I've maybe not thought about things deeply, but maybe have got a slightly lateral, you know, or... um or oblique angle on things. And it's not quite the same as being clever, but it's not, I'm, I wouldn't think of myself as a clown. I don't generally think of myself as somebody whose instinct is like, like the hawk for the rabbit. You know, when I see a joke, I'm not that guy. There are some comedians who are like that, who are just just their instinct, Lee Mack is a good example, you know, whenever you're with Lee, he will, he will observe, he will spot the funny in anything you say, it can be tiring, you know, he is, he's not quite, but he is almost always on, and it it can almost be, you know, enough, okay, but um, but I'm not like that, I'm not one of those people, you could go a whole evening with me without me being funny at all, and, and instead trying to, I suppose, if I'm honest, sort of impress you, or at least entertain you with my erudition you know and that kind of stuff because I do find that kind of conversation at least as valuable and worthwhile as as one in which people are just you know uh, popping crackers
1: yeah well you can be both clever and funny and generally funny people are always clever to be honest I do
2: think it is a it's a sign of intelligence for me but then again of course that it may be a sign that you're on the same intellectual wavelength do you know what I mean? There might be people who would look, look at me and think it's not clever enough to be funny. And there's other people who kind of go, oh, it's all very funny, clever, but it's not very funny. Do you know what I mean? I think it's, <laughs> we, we tend to share a sense of humour with people who with whom we also have the same, roughly the same reading age, if you know what I mean. <laughs> 12.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and finally, Simon, desert island gags. You can only take one joke with you to a desert wow. island.
2: Wow. Wow. What would it be? Well, that is a good question. I, um, I think there might be one or two that I've, that I've forgotten that I, uh, that I really should name, but there is one that I do remember the first time I heard it. I just thought that is glorious about the little, the little German boy who I don't know if he's adopted. It's kind of, it's a British joke. I think he's adopted and he's German and, um, and his parents bring him up and they make sure that, he, you know, because they know he's adopted and and they know that life might be problematic for him. They, they make sure everything is absolutely perfect. You know, they never argue. They, his dinner is always there on time. And um, and he's looked after very well and he doesn't speak. He doesn't speak until about his sixth birthday. And they're very worried, but they've never like raised it or taken him to the doctor. They're just sure. Give him time or whatever. And they bring out his, his birthday cake and um, and he blows out the candles and they give him a slice of cake and he takes a bite and he goes, oh, there is wax on the top of the cake. And they say, my God, you spoke. You can speak. He goes, yes, of course I can speak. I'm six years old. And they go, well, why haven't you not spoken until now? And he says, well, up until now, there has been no need to complain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a brilliant gag and a
1: wonderful way to end a wonderful It's lovely, interview. isn't
2: it? Yeah, oh. thank you. Oh, I, Simon. I, I can't be sure whether he needs to be German, but, it, but that's how I heard it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's perfect and a perfect way to end the perfect interview. Simon Evans, thank you so much for being a wonderful guest on the Humorology podcast.
2: Absolute pleasure, Paul. Thank you for having me. The Humorology Podcast
1: was hosted by Paul Barros. Produced by David Rose. Music by Steve Hayworth. Creative direction by Les Hughes. And additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky Production.